Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host Gavia Baker Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, at the request of our Patreon sponsor Heath, we are revisiting a childhood favorite of mine, *The Road to El Dorado*, released in 2000. In this early DreamWorks animation feature, uh, Miguel and Tulio, voiced by Kenneth Branagh and Kevin Klein, who are two 16th-century Spanish conmen, find themselves inadvertently on a ship bound for the New World. When they escape and decide to attempt to find the mythical city of gold, they are unprepared for the real-life civilization that they discover, uh, or for the fact that the native people believe them to be gods. This was one of my favorite movies as a child, which says a lot. I think a lot of people sort of around our age look back at this as like the urtext of the sort of slash fic, as we would once have said, uh, <laughs> fandoms. It's I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there is like probably a thesis to be written about oh, yeah. sort of 90s animated movies and how mainstream Disney ones... The queer subtext is all in the villains. And in the off-brand ones at places like DreamWorks, it's all in just like the main characters. So it's like, depending on what you gravitate to with these, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is the most paradigmatically obvious one, I would say. Like it follows all the standard beats of stories that we are familiar with. Many other properties we could list progress it exactly the same way well it's a buddy movie and it's very much in the same vein as like the sting which we did an episode on a few weeks ago which is you know it's all you know it's like a comedy about a odd couple partnership of goofy con men who enjoy each other's company but argue a lot and um it's just directly riffing off the kind of road to whatever movies which were like Bing Crosby and Bob Hope did like maybe 10 of these in the 1940s to 60s and they were all along these lines where it was like they would play the two protagonists who were a pair of con men and then they'd go to some location um, with a female character played by Dorothy Lemur and then they would have hijinks and um, it would always be a terrible idea to get wrapped up in a girl but you always would and uh, this, <laughs> this, this one is sort of the 90s kind of riff on that and it's also kind of all about a couple of white guys going to like an exotic location um, for whatever that may mean politically. <laughs> yes, we'll discuss that at length. Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is the other like very obvious. Yes, which I've not seen actually. We're going to do an episode on that later this year when it hits its anniversary. Look forward to that, everyone. I haven't seen it since oh, yeah. high school. But yeah, like the big sort of plot driver in the second half of the story is that they essentially break up and it's very sad for everyone and there is a girl who kind of gets in between them and but it really works as a threesome which like it doesn't in most films because most films like either sort of demonize the female character or she's too much of a sort of accessory whereas in this it's like she is actually a character kind of like singing in the rain you do actually have your like you do have your poly angle yes (laughs) Which many people on the internet have Yes, if you go on Tumblr, people people are still making a lot of fan art for the threesome from The Road to El Dorado. Yes, that is a thing that is going on. And it's a surprisingly sexy movie, probably because, once again, it is off-brand, not not Disney, so... Well, the production history of this film is quite interesting. If you want all the nitty-gritty details, you can go on Wikipedia, which is where I am getting all of my information from. So, you know, that information is accessible to you. But... DreamWorks was founded not long before this movie came out. It was one of the earlier 
properties. Um, DreamWorks obviously was started as uh, Steven Spielberg's sort of Disney alternative to release um, animated movies and then branched out to maybe it started out just as his production shingle. I certainly at the beginning, it was doing primarily animated stuff. And now it does a variety of things. But um, there's a detail in the production background section where they're talking about how initially the idea for the movie was to have it be much more dramatic. And then they sort of shifted to a more comic tone. But that originally, um, Chell, the female character, was going to be a much larger focus in the movie. And she does have a, quite a bit of screen time and I think is a very distinct personality. Like, I think the character really works, but she was going to be perhaps like the second lead as opposed to this, which is definitely like a two lead film with the men. And then she was going to be like, even basically like, sexier and that the stuff was going to be really steamy and that perhaps the movie was going to be rated pg-13 that is wild and then they were like well maybe we'll push back maybe we'll pull back on that and um her costume shouldn't be as revealing which also like in terms of subject matter because like this was i think this was probably around the same time as prince of egypt and prince of egypt is serious like also amazing but prince of egypt is a serious movie but like the concepts and background are a serious story. This is not a serious story. This is like intrinsically like a classic old Hollywood sort of adventure movie in the vein of these Bing and Bob movies and Indiana Jones. And it's about two con men. And if you're making a movie that's about two con men, it's gotta be a comedy. Well, no, they they were they did Prince of Egypt before this and then they had had this serious thing in the Oh works right. So for they this. were like, we should make a movie that's like Prince of Egypt but horny. Well Which is <laughs> No, Wild. they had had some, like, it, you know, jungle adventure story. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, no, we should do a comedy film instead. But, like, if you have seen this film, the female character's character design and her costume, it's like three strips of cloth and her hips are like twice the size of her head. What were they thinking <laughs> what she was going to be wearing? Like, I don't even... And it, the mind reels, but... I think that that is really telling in terms of the finished product because this is obviously definitely a children's film. Like, clearly, it's an animated movie. It's got delightful Elton John songs in it. This is what it was marketed for, etc. But I think the tone is quite distinct from a lot of children's movies and especially children's movies that are now made. I rewatched this last night. I mean, it's a lot less sentimental. Yes. And it doesn't, and it's not as moral. Well. Because if there's, I mean, it kind of is, but it, it isn't like, here's like a life lesson. The life lesson is you should stick by your friend who is a big criminal. <laughs> well, see, you haven't watched this in a while, whereas I have. And it's absolutely teaching moral lessons. But I mean, I think not... it does teach the lesson of you shouldn't invade a country. Yes. <laughs> so... And also that material goods are not important. And that you shouldn't betray right, people. Okay. Right? okay. And also that, like, murdering people is bad. That's not good. Uh, okay, um, well. <laughs> and But the material goods thing is, like, a central part of the story, as is the colonialist aspect, which we will discuss shortly. But it definitely, like, it has sort of ethical questions that it, that it answers, which is a not exclusively children's movie phenomenon, but definitely a core part of children's movies. But um, 
it is so unsentimental about resolving those questions for the most part in a way that is very uncommon for children's movies. And even the sort of cutesy kids movies things that it does. So, you know, animated kids films will usually or often have like animal sidekicks, right? Which this movie does. There's a an amazing horse and then also kind of a... Um, like an armadillo. Who there's an armadillo where there's like, a, there's like an elaborate Reddit theory that the armadillo is actually a god all along and causes all of the god events that happen in the film. But um, I do not subscribe to Reddit theories, so you'll just have to seek that one out on your yes. own if you're interested. <laughs> but neither of those two animals is particularly like cute, in quotes. The horse is like a war horse and is basically the audience avatar in a lot of ways in terms of like looking at the characters and just making this face of like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you are insane. And they provide a lot of comic relief, but it's not the same kind of thing as a character like that would provide in many other films of that type. For instance, Disney movies. And like a lot of the sort of jokes that they're making are kind of shocking content wise and just it is quite visually sophisticated in a way that i think most children's movies now mainstream kids movies i mean just are not do you mean in terms of visual gags or like the scene no the the like the actual animation okay like it's really 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 beautiful in quite a classic way this was a movie that kind of was on the brink between digital and old yeah it was like when they were hand. just starting to add some sort of computer generated stuff into the line drawn animation yes cuz i remember like i was 10 when i saw this movie and i remember being aware of the fact that there was digital animation in it and i was not at that point i would not have been like reading movie news when I was 10 but somehow I had absorbed that information so I think it definitely was a big part of how it was being sold and it's sort of the digital stuff will be in um kind of like the backgrounds like they do the sort of big panoramic views that clearly have been digitized and some of it is a little bit clunky and that's the only stuff in the movie that's aged I think badly but some of it looks fine and I just kept thinking re-watching it like except for that a few moments of like, oh yeah, you can definitely tell that this was done on a computer. And the fact that I really don't think this movie would be made now at all, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, I don't think you could really like tell when that movie was made. Aside from again, like Elton, you know, Elton John, whatever. Like mm. it really has not aged to a dated point. It just looks really good. It's funny. There aren't, like, pop culture references in it. Like, a kid could watch that now and just think it was great, which is good. And I think that that's, obviously, like, people of our age who watched it when they were children love it because it's a sentimental thing. But I kind of feel like a lot of the reason it has retained this fixture in the culture of our age group is that it still really works to watch it as an adult and it you don't watch it purely as a like, oh, that was cute when I was a kid. Yeah, it has the adult humor, but it's also got kind of the goofy stuff that kids can like. But in terms of like the pop culture thing, generally I'm a bit wearied by people layering a ton of pop culture references into their material. But with this, it's like, it's referencing stuff from like the forties very loosely in a way that you definitely don't need to pick up on, but that just gives it that kind of timeless thing. Like Indiana Jones, which lasts forever because it's like based on 1940s adventure movies in fact that just reminded me you've not seen indiana jones yet so at some point yes (laughs) well 
well, and there's a difference between referencing things in like a subtextual yeah. way, yeah, and, and making and jokes on it, yeah, yeah. Which I think, I mean, I don't go to kids' movies in the theater unless it's like there's a big Pixar thing and it's a big deal or whatever. And even that, like, I missed Coco, which I was thinking about watching this actually because I think there are probably some interesting comparisons to be made. And I just kind of didn't get to that. It wasn't a deliberate thing. But obviously, I'll go to enough occasional things that I'll see ad like trailers for them. So they before Spider-Verse, they showed all the ads for children's upcoming children's films. And um, we talked about this a little bit in a recent episode about another kid's movie. Like they just look so bad. They all look so bad. They look so terrible. And I feel so bad for parents with small children who have to like endure this. I feel bad for people who work in the animation industry because there's a oh. lot of horror stories about what it's like to work in these big CG animation studio conglomerates and like the crunch pressure that everyone has to do is like kind of like working in a video game and then the end result is there's maybe like one movie a year that comes out of like the American Hollywood industry where people are like yeah this is great yeah and last year there were like two Spider-Verse and one other and then there were like dozens of other movies that just kind of sink without trace and it's like this is dark <laughs> well and of course there were, were things that were coming out when we were growing up that oh for no sure everyone just forgets right? the appalling movies of our of but our childhoods <laughs> there are all, there's a lot of stuff that comes out now that is digitally I mean obviously it's all digitally animated now but like this sort of very sort of 3D-ish Pixar-y but not Pixar mm-hmm. digital animation that just looks horrible and it and it dates very badly like within three years it looks garbage and you can tell just from the trailer that like every other line is a joke I'm using quotation marks with my fingers about a piece of current pop culture which i is amazing to me because like i don't understand how six-year-olds find that funny especially not six-year-olds in five years right like six-year-olds they're not paying for the tickets they're like we need to get those millennial parents in so it's like you've got a parent who's like 30 and they've got a five-year-old they're like i know who zendaya is i'm gonna follow the zendaya meme movie yeah (laughs) um i also think this is part of the reason why like the the despicable movies have done so well is that they're one of the few things that it's just like a very easy to comprehend thing for a child is the little the little yell guys right it's just a they just make noises it's fine very comprehensible whereas something like this and it definitely is very distinct from disney in ways we've kind of alluded to but similar in the sense that like the animation is very beautiful and it has it's classic in a lot of ways storytelling wise it's such a just good movie as a film in a way that I, obviously I, you know, love movies. It was like always a movie freak. Like I was obsessed with the, even just the Disney movies I watched as a kid. Cause that's what we were allowed to watch. But I just remember everyone being so obsessed with this film. And like kids are smart and like good things. So it was really you know. weird to, to kind of like look back at this film this week and find out that it just had like extraordinarily average forgettable reviews at the time because I think of this like when when I watched this the first time a couple of years ago I was like wow this is like such an essential film that everyone completely loves from their childhoods and it turns out that like adults of the time did not concur well the- <laughs> but it is legit good because like even watching it for the first time as an adult like age 27 or whatever I was like yeah this this does real it's a really entertaining kind of charming film well the box office was it wasn't a flop but it was definitely not a hit it the budget was 95 million and it made 76.4 million 
So well, probably kind of the general response to this is why Elton John and his like writing partner Tim Rice just kind of didn't do any more films. <laughs> They were like, this sucks. And it's like, no, but you're great. <laughs> and I kind of think this is maybe his best work on a movie like this. I mean, obviously, the Lion King soundtrack. I was is about amazing, to say, you're not dissing the Lion King, but, are you? <laughs> like, I think his songs in this are so unbelievably good. And I remember we had this on rotation like crazy in my house. And I think, I mean, obviously, this is true because it's such a huge cult movie, although it's kind of too big for a cult movie. But I definitely remember everyone I knew who saw this was was also, like, so into it. So it seems like it's one of those things where, like, the people who saw it, it was very popular with those people. And I mean, it lives on in reaction gifts. It sure just, does. Like, <laughs> a couple of gifts from this movie, which I knew long before I'd seen the film itself. Yeah. Well, it's kind of built for that without obviously being built for that, because not they certainly couldn't have predicted that was going to happen on the internet. But there are so many moments that are animated with that effect of seeing like a, a, the, the visual jokes are played yeah. in that way. And there's in a also very like the, the total universality of just reacting with hysterical disbelief at someone being an idiot, yes. which is like right. 90% yeah. of the jokes in this film. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So, I mean, basically the dynamic between these two guys is that Julio, who is played by Kevin Klein, is like the, the smart one. He's like the planner and he's, kind of the cynic and is always anxious about everything and um he and he has dark hair and he's taller because there obviously have to be these <laughs> distinctions and then um Miguel is voiced by Kenneth Branagh and he is shorter and he has blonde hair and uh, and a different style of beard and he is the sort of optimist and he just loves everybody and he's very emotional and he has no capacity to plan anything and so he always is just like Julio what's what's the plan and um they are constantly arguing with each other and he's the one who is like the he's not actually dumb but he's like the dummy and so he'll just do something and Julio is always like Jesus fucking Christ like I'm gonna shoot you like <laughs> I literally am gonna lose my mind so watching them interact is extremely fun and um they wind up sort of inadvertently on this ship out of Spain that's a mer merchant ship, I believe, but it's happening simultaneously with Cortez's expedition to the New World. I was thinking, watching this, and I am still, like, very much not an expert on this period in history. I did read a very good book about it before we went to Spain a couple of years ago. But, like, I don't know very much about Cortez. But this is, like, this is how I knew he was a person, was this movie. And I guarantee you... I'm probably a better introduction than whatever the hell was happening in Pocahontas. <laughs> well, we're going to get to Pocahontas later. But um, Pocahontas was not Cortez. But it, no, no, I know. It, know. Was John, it was John Smith and yes. it was you know, English people. But yeah, thematically, but, um, this one is a lot more critical, I think, overall. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But it, I think probably 99.9% .9 of like white American children watching this, this was the first we had ever heard of this right which is incredible just wild what a world we live in just okay and he's not a central figure at all in the film he's almost a framing device or like used mm -hmm. in that way it's sort of just this like ominous frightening figure which is interesting because obviously they care about having that historical context exist in the film but our heroes, who are just dummies, 
are not really involved in that explicitly at the beginning. They just sort of wind up on this shore and they had this map to El Dorado. And um, they notice when they arrive and they have this horse with them that they see the beginning of the map. And then, of course, Miguel, because he's an optimist, is like, we should go try to, we should try to find it. And they do, and um, they get there and sort of get taken in by the locals who think that they are gods because they sort of resemble this image of the... Which is like a very 19th century adventure novel kind of idea, like the the explorer being accepted as a god by the indigenous people. Right. <laughs> um, but it's hilarious because they are like the least divine presences that you could possibly imagine. I mean, I guess they they work as trickster gods, but that is very much not how they are being treated by the populace. <laughs> no. Um, like, they're just totally ridiculous and incompetent and are just like, what's happening? But are really into it, of course, as anyone, frankly, would be in this situation. And they, the sort of three central indigenous characters are Chell, who's voiced by Rosie Perez, um, who is the love interest, who they encounter right at the beginning and who immediately clocks that they are 100% not divine beings. And then the sort of head of the city um, on a secular level and then the head of the city on a spiritual level who have this thing going where they hate each other. And so they're like, oh, we can just sort of play them off one one another and then this will be great. We can get them to give us all their gold and then we can skedaddle out of here and go back to Spain on this huge boat that we will man ourselves, two people. It's fine, good plan. Obviously all of this goes wrong, as things always do. Julio falls in love with uh, Chell. Miguel falls in love with the city of El Dorado. And uh, Zeklacon, who is the spiritual guy, is evil, figures out they're not gods, and then decides he has to kill them and destroy everyone. Sort of goes from there. I think the sort of post-colonial situation with this movie is really interesting because it clearly was part of what they were trying to do was sort of like pick up the Pocahontas audience. It was like five years after Pocahontas. So it's not like it was coming a year after, but these movies take a long time to make. So, but there are several very obvious comparison points. I mean, the whole plot of Pocahontas is that they've gone to Virginia to try to find gold and there is no gold in Virginia. Um, so that's, it's sort of presented as like a fool's errand. Like I haven't seen Pocahontas in a very long time. Yeah. I've not seen that movie since I was literally six years old and personally obsessed with Pocahontas. But like, I think like this film is much more sort of cynical in a fun way. Whereas Pocahontas, even though it is like, there's, you know, there's bad colonists and then there's wonderful romantic John Smith. It's much more of a sort of sentimental thing. Right. Well, it's interesting. I haven't, I haven't seen it in so long. I don't want to like analyze it too closely because I just it's just I, I don't want to do that but yeah, mostly what we actually know about is Avatar the recent remake of Pocahontas <laughs> Avatar is more a remake of Dances with Wolves I have always said than Pocahontas I feel like Pocahontas gets dragged into that in a in an unfair <laughs> way um but uh the interesting thing with Pocahontas is that I think they do a very good job of making the colonists look really bad. John Smith and his like secondhand guy in that are totally like terrible. 
And you definitely get the sense of this is like a totally futile, like stupid idea, right? But then they feel compelled to be like, but also everyone should just be nice. Just calm down. I mean, yeah, the all I remember is John Smith being the love interest and therefore kind of tacitly endorsed by, by the film. Oh, John Smith is the good one, right? Like 100% yeah. he's the good one. But what I always liked about Pocahontas also is that she doesn't go away at the end. I was obsessed with this movie as a child, as were many girls at that time. And I think the reason I liked it so much, aside from the fact that music is just great, is that she stays at the end and is like, "You, I'm sorry, but like, you're not actually that important. Like, you may, you may leave. And so it's possible that if I watch that now, I would just be like, this movie is garbage. 100% no, goodbye. But I think it's sort of an interesting case of parts of it work and parts of it completely don't at all. And you kind of can feel the people being like, we're not quite knowing what they're doing. Obviously, the great Pocahontas movie is Terrence Malick's The New World. That's a different subject. Whereas this film, I think, still has some kind of... Like, is borrowing certain things from that. The animal sidekick's very similar. The general setup of, like, searching for gold in the new world. Very similar. You know, they're literally, like, specific referencing things are taken from that. Like, it's obviously trying to pull on that. I remember when I watched it as a child thinking this. Like, it was definitely in the air around this movie. But I think they are much smarter about it and it is a less sentimental film just in general. I mean, something you were saying before we were recording was, like, every five years or so, there will be often a children's movie which is kind of on this same framework of based around some kind of indigenous fable from somewhere in the world. Because like, there's obviously so many like children's movies that are based on European fairy tales. And, you know, you'll, and then you'll get something like this, which is kind of semi-historical, kind of semi-fantasy sort of thing. And then, but like, I feel like this film is sort of the turning point almost because we just have like decades and decades of movies that are either literally the kind of films this was based on, which is the sort of Indiana Jones story of some American slash European adventurers going to what would be described as an exotic land and finding some treasure and having an adventure. And it's all like from that perspective, which is basically what this film is, but it's kind of more balanced and sympathetic, like in a kind of children's movie way. And now we've kind of got to the point where Disney's making movies like Moana, where it's like they've you know, they've actually decided to do some real research and like cast it in an ethical way and stuff because like Hollywood has kind of developed a lot since then. So I was thinking about this as I was I was preparing our document because I, I, while I was watching the movie, I was thinking this movie would never get made now. And there are ways in which that statement is a positive and a negative, right? So the negative is the sort of stuff I was talking about before about the fact that it is this kind of classical animated film it's so visually beautiful in a way that you know sort of indie animated films often are but like mainstream animated movies are not obviously spider-verse is beautiful but it was its own kind of visual thing right this kind of animated movie just does not get made anymore but the sort of positive way in which this would never get made anymore is like you watch the credits of this movie and it is clearly just like white people and what's interesting is that they clearly did an enormous amount of research for this. Like the character designs of the people living in El Dorado, I think as someone who has no expertise whatsoever on like Latin American culture of this time period, 
they look great just in terms of the faces of the people. They all really look like very distinct people, like even beyond the um, central characters who have quite distinct personalities, just the people on the street who they kind of interact with briefly, they all look like human beings. There are a lot of... And distinctive character design is something that a lot of people really do complain about in kind of contemporary animated movies, especially with like female characters. But I'm sure people are familiar with the fact that... Yes. (laughs) There's a a kind of a lack of variety in quite a lot of these films. Yeah. And like there are lots of scenes where um, Miguel in particular will kind of briefly interact with like children on the street and all the kids are so... Like they just look so much like real children in a way that's very compelling. And so clearly these people were absolutely in good faith in terms of researching this. And I give them total credit for that. Like they, I think they did a really good job, but I'm watching it and I'm like, but I do not think, you know, that this would happen now. Like I was thinking of Moana. I was thinking of Coco. Right. And then today I looked up Moana and Coco. Moana was directed and written by some white guys, right? Two white men directed it, I think, and a white man wrote it. And I'm sure that they had people below the line who were not, but I would be interested to see the statistics on that. And obviously, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote music and The Rock was, you know, the voice talent. And they had the young woman whose name I cannot recall because I didn't actually see the movie as the lead. And that got a lot of press. And that's great. But that is not the same thing as all the other stuff I was just talking about. And Coco had a white male director and the screenwriters, there was a man of Latino descent and a white man. And so I was like, oh, we haven't made as much progress as I actually thought on that. Like, we're kind of just, okay, interesting. The shift has been more that the people who are foregrounded in these stories are not the white guys anymore, which is good. But I think that people telling them, it has not changed as much. Yeah, so it's kind of like the divide between like the representation issue and the employment rights Correct. issue because yes. people are surprisingly enough because representation is the part that deals with with the kind of image rather than substance, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's easier to shift that round than go behind yep. the scenes and yeah. And animation, the animation community obviously is famously uh, fraught with many issues, sort of of this type and others. I was glad I looked it up because it was um, demoralizing. Because Coco won um, won all the awards that year for the original song, and that was a, a Latino writing team, I believe. And again, that's like great that they were doing the music for that movie. I'm not. I don't want to diminish that contribution at all, especially because the music was. I again, I haven't seen this film, but everyone said the music was such a like crucial part of that film, and that's a really important part of movie making. But that was what I had in my mind. Like I mean, there the was people, a lot of fuss right? around Coco basically being accused of plagiarism. Yeah. If, if you recall that, where there was like another film that was also about the Day of the Dead. And then Co- it was called The Book of Life and it came out like three years before mm-hmm. or something. And it was uh, it was made by a Mexican filmmaker. Yeah. And then Coco came out and obviously had like much more attention. Yeah. Yeah. Also the fact that Pixar tried to trademark Dia de los Mortos at some point, which was like... <laughs> I did not remember that. Oh yeah, my god, I don't amazing. recall the details, but yeah, they they were, and it was like you can't trademark that one, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing I do appreciate about this movie, and I I think the thing that kind of 
doesn't totally work. I was thinking about this watching it. Is it like they still have to have a bad guy, right? And so Zeko Khan, who's like the priest, is the bad guy. And his his badness is that he does all this sort of like magical mumbo jumbo. And so he's doing the the sort of native people's like weird spiritual stuff. And then the white guys have to sort of defeat him and they're like rational beings, right? And yeah, I think that yikes. that's not, that's the thing in the movie that you're like, mm, I don't think so. But I think the movie, like on balance. Oh God, I just, I was just thinking of Jafar and then I remembered the fucking Aladdin movie that's going to, oh God, the don't goddamn even, Aladdin don't movie. Don't even think <laughs> about it. Let's just not think about it. it We're not going to be doing an episode of the Aladdin movie. Oh, <laughs> don't worry. No. Don't worry, listeners. Well, I mean, but again, that's right. Like Guy Ritchie directing the Aladdin movie. A classic Absurd. example of what we've just been discussing. <laughs> But I think on balance, despite that one element that I think is sort of, ugh, I think the movie is doing a quite interesting thing in that it is about these white guys who are not like the worst colonist because Cortez is that figure, right? And he sort of is lurking in the movie and sort of pops up again at the end. But they are not like the good colonist. They are not John Smith in this situation, even though one of them does fall in love with like the hot native. Yeah, lady. they just want they just want gold. They're a couple of hand solos. Right. They're just kind of shitty. And part of what they have to learn over the course of the movie is that like they don't actually belong in this place. Like Miguel wants to stay and they'll be happy to have him because like he's a nice person, but he can't actually stay there. It's not it doesn't belong to him. And I think the movie is very sharp on that. And I think it's also very smart about having a range of native characters who are all very distinct from each other. Obviously, the two best written and most enjoyable characters are the two main characters. Like, that's just what's going to happen. But it's not like you have a bunch of indigenous characters who are all exactly the same, right? Like, you have the sort of crazy priest dude... But then you also have the, like, head of the city who's just this kind of, like, chill guy who's very fun. And then you also have Chell, who is the sort of, like, I'm getting out of here if there's anything I can do about it. And then also, like, Zekel Khan, the, the priest's assistant guy who's just, like, a total moron, like, just an idiot and winds up dying because he's an idiot, right? Like, and so it feels very much like an actual community of people. Which the character design helps with a lot. And I think that that really just helps what the movie is trying to do. And so you have, again, like a moral point being made, but without main characters necessarily being made to be like horrible, which... I mean, do you know what I think it succeeds better than? Is The Lost City of Zed. I think, I I I will put this out there. I think that this is better than The Lost City of Zed, which is a serious adult drama that came out in 2016. And it is it is a non-comedic version of this story. Like, it's based on a true story. It's about this um, famous slash infamous British explorer called Percy Fawcett, who was, like, pathologically obsessed with finding a lost city in the Brazilian rainforest. And he went on kind of a series of increasingly disastrous missions into the forest with, like, kind of a team of people um, his son is played by Tom Holland, so if you're a Tom Holland obsessive, you might want to watch this movie, but I doubt you'll enjoy it. 
I was not particularly impressed by this film, which I thought was going to be like great and really gritty. And it was like, I feel like it was unnecessarily flattering towards its protagonist, but it is very much of the kind of view where it's like trying to juggle the fact that it acknowledges that the main guy is a maniac who shouldn't be doing what he's trying to do. But it is also completely like narrowly focused on him. And it's sort of like, isn't it like, it's got this weirdly kind of ahistorical approach where it's trying to position him as like this heroic figure who like the reason why he wants to find the lost city of Zed is because he wants to prove to the other more racist British explorers that actually the people of Brazil are very impressive and advanced have built this city and it proves that everyone's wrong about disrespecting like the native people of Brazil. And it's like, okay, that's a reach in terms of his motives here. But then it's like, it's actually just about someone who was like fucking trampling through someone else's country uninvited for decades and like fucking everything up. The native characters are just sort of like standing around in the background. And then, you know, spoiler alert, the film ends with them like burning him alive or maybe just burning his corpse or something. But it was just like, this is just all, yeah. So anyway, The Road to El Dorado is a better film than The Lost City of Zed. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree. I liked that movie fine. <laughs> I think I would have liked it more if I didn't know history. <laughs> have you read the book? No. Because I've got the book. So I can I can fact check the movie for you once I've read the book, which I'm planning on doing in I the mean, imminent future. The film was all like, oh, isn't his wife like a strong female character? And I was like, why are you doing this? <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't read it yet, so I don't want to get into a debate. I think yeah. the stuff about him being obsessed with, like, proving that the city was there did was was did happen. Oh, but, yeah, no, you know. for sure. But it was like, I wanted it to be more along the lines. I mean, I the reason why I watched this is because I am very into the Franklin Expedition, which is the equivalent of this, but for like, the North Pole. It's what the TV show The Terror was based on. And it's about some similarly sort of obsessive and unprepared British colonial explorers going to somewhere they shouldn't go. And in the case of the Franklin expedition, like in reality, they're both very similar apart from they're in different places. And it's like both of them go horribly wrong and you can just be like, well, it's your own fault. But with this one, the film was like, yes, well, you know, he was a good man at heart. And it's like, what? I feel like that is not the interpretation of the movie that I or its bigger fans, I liked it fine. I didn't think it was great. Um, James Grace. Great film is The Immigrant, which I think may actually finally be streaming in the UK. Four I will years happily watch The Immigrant. I am certainly The Immigrant is wonderful. <laughs> I definitely did not watch that movie and be like, he's actually, think he's actually great. I thought he was a fucking nutcase. Like, that was my takeaway from that movie. The actual great movie in this genre to move on is uh, Embrace of the Serpent, which you should all watch, which is about similar things and takes place in the Amazon. Uh and is about German people doing similar things, but is mostly about the actual indigenous people and was shot with indigenous people and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, <laughs> the road to El Dorado is very good. I give it an A minus, which is a very high grade for me. So, Did you know that people literally drained a whole lake trying to find El Dorado? I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, because no. there's like, because the, the kind of the El Dorado legend, which is like, just absolutely just all fabricated from like, it's like a game of telephone. It's one of these things where it's like, I mean, technically you can say, yes, there are many lost cities which are located across a very large amount of land across 
Central and South America. But like the concept of El Dorado was like, yes, there were a couple of cultures here that had a lot of gold objects and some of them were in the same place because that's how archaeology worked. But like people decided that it was in this lake, Lake Guatavita or something like that. People tried to drain this lake with like literal buckets in the 16th century, they had like a bucket chain of people being like, we're gonna, we're just gonna carry the lake out of the lake. <laughs> Did not work. Um, and then like 300 years later, like a bunch of mad European businessmen, because of course, funded basically opening a hole in the bottom of the lake and removing the lake that way. And uh, what they located was mud, mostly primarily yeah. they did find mud. Yeah. Um, there was a little bit of gold in there because like there was gold objects being kind of sacrificed into bodies of water in quite a lot of places there. And it was like, you did not make a profit here. And every story to, to, to about El Dorado ends exactly the same way as this story, which is that you have found mostly disaster. Yeah. Because the way that people have profited, as we know now, the real El Dorado was McDonald's raising rainforests and making more gold that way, not finding any holy gold in a lake. <laughs> oh my god. I just remembered that um, Voltaire also casts El Dorado as like the, the utopian society in Condide. It's like the really? best place. Yeah. So this, this had been going on for some time. Like, <laughs> this is really uses the emblem. The last thing I think I wanted to mention in terms of comparisons was that I did keep thinking watching this of Black Panther because I think in terms of like contemporary things that this is similar to, I think there's a lot going on with like cultures that exist without colonialism. And like, obviously this is taking place in the past. So like all of the cultures in Latin America existed pre-colonialism before the Cortez invaded. I'm sure their like, papers have been written about this film in terms of the design, but basically what they do with the design and the film, and like if you are for some reason still listening to this episode and have not seen this movie, I and are interested in like set, you know, production design, etc. Um, I really do recommend watching it because they essentially had to design a fake civilization, right? And um I mean they have like a lot of sort of generalized kind of Aztec kind of architecture and art to yeah. work from, like carvings and sort of the way the, the glyphs worked and so yeah. forth. And like, I'm not suggesting that it's as sophisticated as the design stuff in Black Panther, but it's interesting to think about the way the story functions in terms of like idealized societies that are existing without those the pressures of imperialism. And they do do kind of interesting things with the visual design and like the way the society is existing as sort of an enclave from the rest of the world and then the idea of this this sort of invasion happening mm -hmm. is really terrifying and then it ultimately doesn't happen and it sort of remains cloistered off as this like perfect thing at the end so the movie is ultimately kind of this fantasy which is like nice but also sad in a way yeah, um, this movie was really fun to watch again. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it since you were uh, much younger, give it another spin. It's streaming on Hulu for free right now. So uh, just an FYI, perhaps if you have some, some younger relations, be a fun time. Thank you so much to Heath for sponsoring this episode. It really was uh, a delight to revisit. Next week, we will not have a... 
full-length episode because we are on vacation currently as you listen to this but we will be doing a patreon minisode for avengers endgame because i will not be seeing avengers endgame because i do not give a fuck but gav will be so she'll be reporting i will be seeing a midnight screening i am probably not going to be writing a review for this because my colleague michelle jaworski has a press screening so she'll be doing that review but um i will have opinions on this film and i'm sure i'll be writing some kind of follow-up because um that is how I pay for my daily crust. Yes. So. <laughs> so she'll do that and then will tell me what happens in the movie. Um, hmm. All will... three hours of it. I'm, oh my God. I'm really hoping oh. that less than an hour and a half of that is action scenes. Because if an hour and a half of that film is action scenes, Have you I will die. Have you been reading all of the articles <laughs> where the actors are like, yeah, I was like punching a thing and I didn't know what the thing was. There was yeah. no one there or... Brie Larson being like, yeah, I was saying lines, but I didn't really know what any of the context was. And I hadn't read either of the scripts of either of the movies I was going to be in. Like, oh I my mean, God. At this point, the fact that the fact that they don't know what their characters are is like almost normal for these franchises. I mean, I obviously don't agree with it, but like the thing that I was really fascinated by that actually did feel like news was the explanation for Brie Larson's makeup. Because obviously in the trailer, like a lot of people noticed that Brie Larson for Captain Marvel has like very glam makeup in this movie. And most people's initial instinct as was mine which was was basically like this film which we all know was filmed before captain marvel it was before they'd ironed out what her character would look like and i was like well this is directed by men and like they are fools who don't understand makeup and there was like an int- there was an interesting interview with one of the directors where he was basically like actually all of the main actors in this franchise have quite a lot of creative control over their own hair and makeup. So like they will say, you know, Scarlett Johansson, you need to have different hair in this movie because you have to have different hair in every movie because she likes to disguise herself, but you have full control over it. And like Brie Larson has, you know, her own makeup person that goes with her from film to film, like many film stars do. And they created the look for her together. So like this was Brie Larson and her makeup person selecting this look. But it was before she knew what the characters were like because she hadn't filmed the movie. She hadn't seen a script. She didn't know what her characterization was and hadn't filmed the Captain Marvel movie, by which point they had a more kind of clear idea of what she was going to look like, which was kind of mid-90s soft bitch. So like... <laughs> well, right. It's like, I think it's kind of, I think it's very cool for them to yeah. give the actors autonomy in that way. But if the actors have no information... Yeah, they have nothing like, to work from. What are you... Because it definitely, like, it definitely doesn't make me think, oh yeah, like you know, they're, they're sexist men who don't understand makeup anymore because, like, they have given people freedom. But it's like, what the fuck is the movie about? This interview with Tom Holland where he was like, yeah, they didn't tell me who I was fighting, so I was just, like, flailing my fists in midair. <laughs> it's just, like, such an absurd job. Uh, movies, 2019, modern cinema. Good yeah. Stuff. Oy, oy, oy. Anyway, that will be in your ears soon. Can't wait to not watch it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to hear that, hear any of our other minisodes or commentary tracks, read our blog posts, or request that we watch and discuss a movie of your choosing, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabia, where can our listeners find you or your work on the internet? Uh, Yeah, you can find my writing on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ml davies our podcast is on twitter at overinvested pod uh, on tumblr at overinvested podcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com thanks again bye